Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, this is the Meat Eater Podcast recording out of Bozeman, Montana. Hometown of our guest, Randy Newberg, who's been hosting hunting TV programs for a long time. A while. How long? Well, I think, as my grandpa would say, Moby Dick was a minnow back when I started. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's weird to say, Steve, but I'm going into year eight. Oh, okay. So that's, I'm not like Methuselah, mm-hmm. but I, I guess you could say I've been there, done that. Eight years is a long time. Eight years is a long time to do anything. It is, especially I just turned 50, and well, I'm going to be 51 in November. And you know I do these backpack hunts, mostly, and I'm like, I don't think I'm going to live long enough to do another eight years. It's just, it grinds on you. You guys know. Yeah. You do it. You know, I was talking to, uh, uh, that That leads me to something about age that's interesting. But um, I, I want to point out to our listeners that Randy, who's seen and done everything, was just marveling. He was blown away by the quality of the complete guide to hunting, butchering, and cooking wild game. I was. I told Volume you guys. One. I said that that would take most people a lifetime. You hear this, people? And then you guys said, well, how long do you think? I said three years. And you guys looked at each other like, yep. So so if I'm reading what you're saying right, Randy, you feel like people are going to get their money's worth when they buy it. I don't know what you're going to price it at. 25 bucks, I think. 25 bucks? It's it's giving it away. You're giving it away. Right. You, You should buy two of them at that price. I mean, it's... Really, I, I'm sitting. Yeah, and up you there. have a, and you have a background that has to do with like you dealing people's money. <laughs> As a CPA, yeah, I get to disinherit the federal treasury. As a and, CPA, uh, Randy thinks you ought to buy that book. If if you don't buy that book, <laughs> folks, you're not going to kill an elk next year. That's exactly right. I I can promise you that. Or if you do kill one, you're not going to know how to take care of it out in the field. That's exactly right. And I was reading Giannis your piece about tuning up bows. Mm-hmm. Where did you come up with all that stuff? Experience? No, he just, I told him about that. Oh, yeah? Okay. I yeah. told him about it, and he just wrote about it. 
I, I think you need to make that like into a pocket guide. Yeah, well, I gotta you, say, you, you where don't want to carry that up? book. You don't want to carry no. it three hundred or four hundred. <laughs> it's not pages. like it's. I can't call it original content. I mean, yes, I did put it down in my own words, but like, it's not like I picked up a, a piece of wood and a string, and then I l- eventually learned how to make a compound, and then I learned how to tune a <laughs> compound. You know, like all this stuff. Like, yes, I've read you know hunting magazines and and you know watch youtube videos and all this stuff since i was a little kid and so that's you know how it came out but it's not like i made up how to you know get ready for archery season like a gazillion guys will be like yeah yeah that's how i do it too yeah. you know but wow i was impressed i was thumbing through the book and i'm just thinking you know what this is a serious project <laughs> just I, you guys go into a lot of detail on yeah. a lot of things i'm afraid that and, no one will ever read it. i don't want to I, I was half joking i mean i like to plug the book but i was half right. joking but i want to get you to think about age when you talk about like backpack hunting uh-huh how many years do you think you got left well i always tell like my, hunt as you hunt now right i told my wife i want to backpack hunt until i'm 65 and last a long it's like you got 13 years of hunting left am i doing my math wrong Uh, i'll be 51 in november so 14 15 seasons but last year i packed out three bulls on my back and how many miles total you packed bulls how many miles hey gosh i'd be just a guess steve i'm guessing combined all those trips 30 miles well something like that but one of them was out of a canyon in arizona and it was ugly i mean even though it was only two miles each way (laughs) i remember saying i'm not doing yeah there's different kinds of miles exactly and and my guest hunter had blown out his acl and before the hunt and he told me he said look i've been waiting for years to hunt arizona i'm deferring surgery until after the hunt do you mind having a a guy hobbling along? I'm like, hey, whatever. So he went into it saying, I'm not going to pack. Exactly. All right. He told me. I mean, and he's he was 55, I think. Blew out his ACL playing basketball down in Logan, Utah. And he shows up, and he's got a brace on his knee that looks like, you know, Colonel Steve Austin of the $6 million man. You're too young to remember that, Anna. So. You yeah, had no idea what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. All right. See, I'm, again, we're aging ourselves here. But anyhow, he shoots this bull down in the canyon. Really nice bull. Oh, he like, shot it. Yeah, like a 320 bull. And I, I'll tell you, I, I want to interject. I never met the guy. I bet that man did not have a torn ACL. <laughs> I'm going to start saying that. I'm going to be like on every hunt. I'll be like, yeah, I got enough in me. I got enough in me to get down in that canyon and kill a bull, no problem. Yeah. It's just that once that happens, yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> No, so how hard can I can I hunt for how long? I don't know. I I'm you get to a point, and I've said this on a few episodes where you realize that there are a lot fewer hunts in the front windshield than what are in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I got you. And you enjoy every minute of every day of those hunts as you see the sand draining out of your hourglass in. You start having this internal fear. Gosh, oh man, my hip's hurting today. Is that going to lay me up for elk hunting? Because you know that there's a terminal point when you're hunting anything, let alone backpack elk hunting. So it's like I'm definitely still just too young and dumb to have those thoughts. I know. I I I don't. I yeah. 
And, are you? Or are you have? I have. Up? You do because like my brother's a couple years older. Me and my brother is like he started working out, lifting weights, you know. And now I've been to, I've been lifting to train weights. for hunting. The only thing I'm thinking about it's like I'm married. I got three kids. Like I'm not like working out because I want to be all like go down to the beach. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's like not nah, like I work out because all I'm th- that's the thing I think about not being able to get up a hill. Right. And, and so or yeah. getting smoked by Giannis. <laughs> that Giannis would get to the hill way ahead of me. You know, the and I hunt, a lot of my guest hunters are younger than I am. And I drive a desk for a living half the year. And so I have to make a serious point to get out and hike every day. And I'm lucky here in Montana where I live, I'm a mile from a Forest Service trailhead. Go on a two-hour hike every day. And mentally, I am in way better shape to handle cold, terrible, miserable, ugly conditions than I was when I was 40 or 30. I mean, now I'll just put my head down, lean against the grade, and I don't even think about if I got to walk all day, oh, well, I got to walk all day. Yeah. Whereas when I was 28, gosh, I had to walk for another 45 minutes to get there. This sucks. Now, don't even faze me. It's like, hey, man, I'm still hunting. I got some buddies who are, you know, they're done. They're they're cashed it in or whatever. Yep. And so mentally is fine. I mean, I wish I had the mental fortitude when I was 28 that I have today. It just comes with age. One thing I think about when I think about getting old and not being able to hunt like I like to hunt is I think that m- me now would be able to smoke me when I was 25. Oh, uh, I think if if I put myself back to when I was 25, even though I'm 50 now, I would agree. I, w- I was inefficient in how I operated, my how I walked, uh, you know, uh, how much gear I brought with that I didn't yeah. need, uh, all those things. I and just mentally, yeah, I I could walk myself into the ground today. Whereas in 25, I'd have to sit and have a sandwich after two miles i had a guy the other day telling me about a, a principle in fitness like my brother used to joke or had not used to has joked that people that are big into crossfit you just get good at doing crossfit you know like it doesn't do anything for you and this, I'll, I'll tell this guy that and he says it half jokingly but this guy was saying there's this principle in fitness called like said okay so it's specific adaptations to imposed demands huh because what i've often wondered about is you could have people who are fit by any measure. Yep. Okay? Like, but you take them out, be like, oh, yeah, you really ought to, before we go hunt in the mountains, you really ought to, like, get in shape. Or, oh, no, I just ran a half marathon, bro. Yeah. And you go out, and it's like they have never done anything. Yep. It's such a specific thing that I really don't think you can replicate the demand. I don't think you can replicate the physical demands of mountain hunting Doing anything except maybe like mountaineering. Yeah, I, I would agree. And that's why, you know, all my a lot of my buddies go to the gym. Oh, I got to be on the cardio. I got to be working on this. Me, I put 20, 30 pounds in a backpack and I just hike. And walk. Yeah. Because nothing replicates the uneven ground, the, okay, I'm going up a grade and then down a grade. I'm side hilling. I'm whatever. Yep. And I just, <laughs> I haven't found any any mechanical device that replicates it. So no, you can't. I just go hike. Anything you do, like obviously any way you can become stronger, you know, 
and all that. It's like, great, sure, it's not going to work against you. But there's just something about yeah, the uneven ground. And I think another thing that really starts to throw people is in addition to that stuff, in addition to just the physicality of it, there's this, all this layered stuff about cold, heat, yeah. boredom, yeah. Um, <laughs> other just discomfort things, Yeah, the, you know, uncertainties. And but when change in food, yep. When you're younger, you sh- all of those get to you. Yeah. And now, doesn't doesn't get to me at all. I, okay. Throw my pack on. I'm usually hiking up the hill. I'm in a very light merino wool, and I got some layers. And yeah, it's cold, but I'm not really thinking about it. Yeah. I'm just got my head down. I got to get to the ridge so I can glass before the sun gets up. Whereas before. Uh, my mind would get distracted. Your mind gets distracted. You're not focused on hunting, and you just start losing it. it. Your edge is gone, and then you start getting cold. You start sniveling. You start whining. You start thinking about, oh, gee, I could have been huddled up next to Mama this morning. Why the hell did I get out of bed? Mama. <laughs> it's a euphemism for Randy's wife. I'm that, that, that's right. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a joke to that if my wife listens to this. We... We ran into Jack LaLanne at an airport one time. Uh, again, no. you, uh, uh, you guys. Is he related to Telly Savalas? Kind of. <laughs> Man, I, I, now I'm really aging myself. And uh, he's, he was like the original fitness expert mm. on old broadcast TV. Surely not before Slim Goodbody. Oh, way before. He was like, I mean, he was like the first guy. So he's like 85, 90 years old. And he says, you know what? You young people need to know it takes discipline. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Kind of taking notes here. He says, it takes a real man to get out of a hot bed with a warm woman and go and jump in a cold pool because he needs to exercise. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I'm like, dude, you're 90 years old, I guess. Maybe you know what you're talking about. So <laughs> anyhow, that's that's the inside joke about mama. Getting, getting out of bed from mama. So now you yeah. so you were brought up in Minnesota though. Yep, way up, way up north. So when did you start doing mountain hunts? Uh, when I moved to Montana, oh. I, I went to college in Reno, and uh, knew just about nothing about Western hunting while I lived in Nevada. You didn't and, hunt there? Yeah, I did. Oh. but I was terrible at it. I tried to hunt everything like I hunted whitetails. Um, and then throw down a stack of carrots and hang a, <laughs> hang a platform, <laughs> hang a platform up the tree. Yeah, there you go. And uh, uh, luckily, stumbled into a few a few deer along the way while I was in Nevada. But when I moved to Montana, I just realized, you know what? If you're going to hunt elk on public land, you better figure it out, Randy, because they aren't standing next to the trailhead. Yeah, and. It requires work. It's just you, as quick as you accept the fact that hunting elk on public land requires exertion, you get way better at it. It's like you go through this period of thinking there's an easy way and you don't kill anything. I mean, I hunted elk for six years and never fired a shot at an elk because I thought there was an easier way. The people just hadn't been smart enough to figure it out yet. Yeah. And finally, I'm like, you know what? Well, there's an easier way. Well, it's yeah. It's called cash. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, money you solves can, a lot of problems. Buy, you can buy elk, man. <laughs> yeah. so, but that wasn't uh, the elk you were looking to purchase. Right. And yeah. so after that, I'm like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And I went in, slept on the mountain that night. Next morning, killed the bull. <laughs> like, holy cow. What year was that? 
That was in 1997. Oh, okay. And uh, I think I've killed at least one bull every year since then, just doing the same thing. And it was like the the light came on. It, Randy, quit thinking there's an easy way to do this. Yeah. There are easier ways to do it, but public land bull elk hunting on general tags is not an easy endeavor. No, and you, but you've made that your thing, man. Public the, land elk hunt. Yeah. Uh, by accident almost because of where i live because of the fact that when you get in the tv world elk are sexy i mean what what sells better than a big bull elk screaming in a camera big white tail buck on the cover of a magazine well that that's probably <laughs> true um but i, I had just, a meeting with some magazine editors the other day and they're like you just it's just a fact of life Oh really? The best selling newsstand when they any cover you do, you can't beat that. And it's yeah. gotta be the biggest buck. So you'll have an article inside the magazine condemning fenced op, fenced deer operations. <laughs> but you'll have one on but the But on cover. the cover magazine is a fenced it's got uh, it's a fenced buck that you're never gonna run into and then you'll sell newsstand copies. Yeah. Well that figures it's that's just some... it's just people like Yeah. That's, that's so you know, to answer your question, a whitetail buck. <laughs> yeah, all right. So I, I kind of got into that. And, you know, living in Montana, elk hunting's a big thing, yeah. like it is in Wyoming, Idaho, Colorado, other places. And then in the mid-'90s, I started applying in all these western states and kind of going here, going there, getting to hunt elk in a lot of different places in a lot of different environments made me a way better elk hunter. Is that right? Because showing up in my backyard in Bozeman, Montana to hunt elk, you kind of know what they're doing. You're kind of doing the same thing every year. Oh, it's for early November. This is where they're going to be. I show up in New Mexico, and their season is, let's say, middle of October. Everything's different. So you really have to get your mind into a pattern and an idea of, these are not the same animal I hunt at home. Mm-hmm. And like you guys know on TV, uh, my my statement is I've got five days to figure it out, sort it out, and pack it out. I show up at a place I've never been, and we've got, what, $20,000 invested in an episode. i got to find some elk. And it doesn't matter that the weather's crappy. It doesn't matter there's a lot of hunting pressure on public land. i got to figure it out. You know, sniveling and whining isn't going to do any good. I can't change the weather. I can't change the hunting pressure. So over the course of doing that enough, you become, at least I feel, I've become a much smarter elk hunter than I was. Yeah. And people watch our show and say, Randy, come on, what's going on here? I never see this many elk on public land. And I don't know what to tell them. It's just, you know, either we're lucky, which we do get lucky at times, but... We really have a system of here's how we do it. We spend the first two days figuring it out. Then we collect all the information. We sort it out. And then we got about another two or three days to try to get one on the ground and pack them out. It's, just, it's that simple. That raises a whole bunch of questions I got for you, but let me start with, <laughs> with one that I already had in my head. I used to feel like this, this is even hard to put. Most hunters have like a thing they do. Okay, mm-hmm. so w- w- when I lived in Michigan, like like what you did, like the thing you did was we bow hunted deer, yeah, right? bow hunted whitetails. Then you do other stuff 
in addition. So like if you're a guy that lives in Wisconsin, you might just like, you like, you hunt agricultural whitetails. But every year you go on a destination hunt. But there's the thing that like the main thing, like if you took it all the way, that thing would be left. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've often thought like when you draw like what your thing is, like for a long time when I lived in Montana, my thing was I like to archery hunt, again, archery hunt public land for elk. That's like the thing I really wanted to be good at. Yeah. Like if I could be good at one thing, it would have been that. All the other stuff I did was auxiliary. Now I travel enough where I don't really have a thing anymore. But I always wondered, does the auxiliary stuff enhance your ability to do the thing? You're saying that it does. Oh, yeah. And, and you're How doing- is that, though? Because you'll go somewhere. Like I remember like hunting elk in New Mexico. I remember just thinking, this has nothing to do with hunting elk in Montana. Right. This ain't where the elk would be. This isn't what they'd be doing. Yep. You know? And I remember, like, I felt like it's like you're not training yourself. You're just on vacation. Before we get Randy's answer to this, we've got to take a short break for our sponsors. And when I tell you, Steve, what really preps me good for elk hunting, you're going to crack up. My son and I fish walleye tournaments. And you're, you're already looking at me like, what the hell does this have to do with elk hunting? Yeah. When you fish a walleye tournament, or even if you go walleye fishing, and probably bass fishing the same thing. I, I don't bass, bass fish, so I can't really say. But before you even go to the lake, you analyze, okay, what time of year is it? All right, it's June. The walleyes aren't going to be up way shallow, and they're not going to be out on the deep pumps. So right there, I've eliminated about... 80% of the lake. All right. What's the water temperature? What's the condition? Are the, what are they doing? It's kind of the same thing with elk. Elk do a different thing at a different time of the year based on certain needs. Food, escapement or survival, water, and breeding. Same thing fish do. And what I found myself doing when I would fish walleye tournaments is I'd figure out one thing that worked. Yeah. And I thought that would work every day, every place, all the time. And I'd catch fish one out of ten days. And boy, when I found them, I'd just thump them. But then the yeah. other nine days, I'd struggle. That's why I fish yellow perch. <laughs> same rig. <laughs> and, and All so, around the country, same rig, same depth. <laughs> Sometimes I'd knock the shit out of them. <laughs> right. And so my son gets bored to tears just doing what his old man does. So he's out there experimenting all the time. And that little guy, he's catching more fish than I am. And it starts driving home the point of, you know what? If you always do what you always done, you're always going to get what you always got. And elk hunting is kind of the same thing. If I go to New Mexico and think I'm going to hunt like I do in Montana, just because it works in Montana, not going to happen. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days. 
or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With errands, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Errands fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest errands store or visit errands.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. I so gotta- how does hunting in New Mexico educate you about hunting in Montana? Because it gets you the mindset that when you show up, the very first thing you have to do before you even get there is cross off all the places on your map where elk are not going to be. Scouting is not about finding out elk. It's about eliminating where ruling, they're not going to be. Ruling country out. Right. So you look at my map when I start. Anything that's within a mile of a motor, i.e. a trailer, a road, crossed off. Just don't even look there because I know other hunters are going to be there. And then I look at, all right, what is the season of the year? Okay, let's say it's the middle of October. All right, it's kind of the, the end of the rut. The bigger bulls are going to be off somewhere looking for their survival locations. They're going to be getting away from hunting pressure. They're going to make a living down in a canyon or some other place, just like they do in Montana. But in Montana, they're going to make a living in some really steep, nasty, blow-down jungle that has a little bit of food and a little bit of water nearby, where they can not get shot for five weeks. Just like black timber. Yeah, or some small little pocket, some steep place that you just aren't going to think to look. In New Mexico, it's the same thing, but it's mostly canyons and, and uh, other terrain differences. So like they're going to go he's there. he's going to want to be down in In New Mexico, he's going to want to be down in a canyon. Yeah. 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 Really, yeah, in Montana, we have a like canyon country for the most part. No, and so it's not that the nuances of the landscape or how those elk behave on that landscape teach me anything about how how to effectively hunt them in Montana. It's the fact that it forces you to analyze what is the season of the year. Based on that season of the year, what are public land elk doing at that time of year? And based on what they're doing, 
what am I going to do to make sure I find them as often as I can? And I, I don't know if that's making sense. No, it makes, total, it, it I makes agree total with you. sense. It makes total it, sense. Because man. most people will go out in the woods on a public land hunt, and they want to think that a new gadget or a new call or a new blah, blah, blah is going to bring an elk to them. It, it very seldom does. I mean, it might, but you're really hoping on gambler's luck if that's all you're thinking about. The people who, and the reason, what did you guys say in Colorado, probably, what, 90% of the elk are killed by 10% of the hunters? Sure. Yeah. And the reason being is those 10% of guys have a system, and they know what to expect when they show up. When they show up, they've already got a plan laid out, either on a map or in their mind. They've got three or four options, and they're not wandering around opening morning before daylight thinking, well, I wonder if that ridge would be the spot or da-da-da. No, they're going to point A, and they go there. They don't see them. The afternoon, they're on point B. They'll have six, eight spots on their map to check out in a five-day hunt, and two to three of those spots will have elk, and they'll just, through a process of elimination, get there, and when they find the elk, they'll kill one. I think yeah. elk are one of the easiest animals in the world to kill once you find them. Once you find them. Finding them is the hard part. And that's why, you know, I, I do a lot of writing and, and blogging, and I tell people, as crazy as this sounds, as simple as it is, you can't kill one if you can't find one. So quit worrying about all the techniques and tactics to kill one. Figure out how to find them. Because once you find them, you'll kill them. Well, so what, what's your way of finding them? Oh, yeah, again, it, it goes back to that whole seasonal thing. I, I break it down so into you think five, about seasons a lot. Right. I break it down into five periods. It's early season, pre-rut, peak rut, post-rut, and late season. And if you gave me one time of the year to hunt and try kill a big bull, it's going to be late season. Let's just say a bull. A bull. Legal bull. <clears throat> a legal bull in Montana is a branch-antlered bull. I'm probably going to hunt him in the peak of the rut in September with a bull. Other states, it might be a different answer. <clears throat> but each of those five seasons, they have a different need. In the early season, you look at it, okay, the bulls still aren't really with the cows, the mature bulls. They're still putting on the feedback. You compare that to late season, and now they don't really care about food. They don't care about cows. All they care about is getting through hunting season. And they've got these sanctuaries they go to. And they and their bachelor groups go there year after year after year. And, and what are those places? You said you named two. You named right. it in Montana. Yeah, I mean, like it'll blow be, down, nasty, right. dog hair. As a, as a general rule, I tell people, and this is Newberg's first rule of elk hunting, is where, <laughs> where hunters go, elk don't. And yeah. So if it's a place hunters can easily get to or don't have to exert themselves to get to, don't expect late season elk to be there. Maybe some late-season cows, but not late-season bulls. And I will share information with people about my early-season spots or my peak rut locations. Fine, everyone kind of knows where those are. But you're never going to hear Randy Newberg tell you where one of these sanctuaries are. Because one, they're hard to find. Two, once you find them, you can go there every year, year after year after year, and kill elk in that same spot. Because these bulls get old by living in these locations. Yeah. Define spot, like what size of ground, what size of patch of ground? Oh, maybe 
hundred acres, sixty acres. Yeah, uh, they will make a living in a sixty acre spot all the way through hunting season. In Montana, we got a five week rifle season. After the first shots, all hell breaks loose. The older bulls are in their bachelor groups, and they are going to the ugly, nasty places. They're going to be places that are hard to approach because of wind or noise or other things. And even if you do approach it, there's going to be a fast escape route. Yeah. And it just, I can almost look at a map now anymore with topo lines and say there's going to be elk there. Okay, but how does that play into your idea that once you find them, they're easy to kill? He's protected by the wind. He's got a good escape route. Yeah. <clears throat> you just got to wait him out. I think most people, when they find an elk, get way too excited. I got to go kill him. I finally found one. And they burst in there. They think, oh, over here, the wind's blowing out of the south. Well, you get over to the other side of the drainage or on the other hillside, and it maybe is blown out of the east. And so before they even get there, they've already announced to the elk what's going on. Yeah. And they see an elk bedded, and they're afraid another hunter's going to come shoot him in his bed. That's what I always think. And I just wait them out. Like how? Like what? Sit there until they stand up and offer me a shot, or I get to some place that says, all right, I'm 280 yards away. I know he's down in there. He's going to feed. I can see his tracks in the snow where he feeds every night. I'm going to let him feed up there, and I'll kill him. And I might have to wait until a half hour before the sun goes down. But if I wait, I'll kill him. I know I'm, I'm making this sound no, overly I like, simplified. I, no, I like everything you're saying. But I, when I first started hunting elk, I made it way too complicated. I was looking for magic calls and, you know, gizmos and all this stuff, and it just it didn't work. I got a great anecdote about a late-season big bull that was killed. Some guy finally killed him, but he was in Gunnison. And I want to say, I, I can't remember if they, it was a, I don't think it was a tough to draw a unit because I think as the story goes, I know that he's, he was about like a 360 something bull. So pretty darn big for Colorado, yeah. Gunnison Basin. And during the rut in September, this bull would rut on private land. And it was like right adjacent to town. I, I want to say it was right outside of Gunnison. So everybody would see him. It's just a giant bull rutting around, rutting around. And then like, you know, rut would go by, rifle season would come around, and this bull would just disappear. Well, finally, one dude is just like literally glassing just like the same mountain that's been behind this bull forever and like looking way high up in the alpine, way above tree line. And there's like this little patch of willows, and there's like 100 yards away, there's like five like dwarfed little whatever, Engelman spruce or, you know, whatever lives way up there, you know, just little like six foot trees. He gets out of spot and scope. He starts looking real hard, and he thinks he can see tracks, like connecting the two. You know, so he's like, "I'm going to start looking at that patch." He climbs up and gets a little bit closer, and sure enough, at like ten minutes before dark, up rises out of these five little spruce trees this giant bull, and he walks like a hundred yards over these little, you know, dwarfed high alpine willows, and he loses them in the dark. Next morning, he's like watching, and like just as it's cracking light, he just sees those antlers disappear in those five little screws. <laughs> he went up there, waited him out, killed that bull, and he said the pack job was just like something out of like a K2 documentary. Just like ice axes, crampons, just like scooting along the edge of this basin, you know, 11 plus thousand feet high. But yeah, I mean, he's got him hanging on his wall now. And 
and plays right into. What I know you think we were hunting uh, mule deer a couple years ago in Colorado, and it was into the I don't know what season it was, but got, there had been a couple seasons going on. And then we're just like looking through my spot and scope, looking for mule deer, and just seeing a nice bull, and be like, "You son of a bitch! That's where you're. Like, that's where you hang out." You know yeah, I mean? I've had like that. like a post rut situation. Yeah, you know? I've had that happen a lot of times in Colorado. I mean, I try to go deer hunting there every two or three years. And I'll be looking in these little pockets for bucks and does, and I'll be like, just like you said, you SLB. <laughs> but right, I know I could probably come back there year after year and find him or other bulls around there. And I just, I don't know. I, I try when I do seminars about elk hunting, and I'm not an expert by any means. I just have a lot of experience. That doesn't necessarily make you an expert. Um, I, I try to tell people. Think about what time of the year you're hunting and what are the needs the elk has at that time of year. In the peak rut, they don't care about food. You know, look, if back to when I said the best way to kill a big bull is late season with a rifle, the other would be at a water hole in a hot climate in the middle of the day during peak rut. I've been lucky and drawn Arizona and New Mexico and Nevada, Utah. I've drawn a lot of those tags for archery. What happens is the bulls take their cows up to bed them in the morning, and they usually stop and get some water somewhere along the way. And once they bed those bulls and they defend them from a few satellites, those bulls will sneak away from the cows about somewhere between noon and 3 o'clock, and they will come out in broad daylight get a quick drink and head back up to those cows. I've seen it so many times that when I have those tags now, I don't go back to camp and take a nap at noon. Yeah. I'm sleeping at the water hole or I'm sitting at the I water hole. I wouldn't be able to hunt with you because I, I, I like to take my nap. <laughs> oh, I, I'd have I to like, nap from 11 to 12 and uh, wake up and get ready for that. But part. I think it's those sort of little tidbits that like yeah. in Montana, you maybe never really thought about it. And then you went to a really hot climate where, like, it happens more often, and you notice it, and you go, well, you know, maybe yeah. on a hot September day, this happens in Montana, too. And so, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, that's so. the thing, too, like, uh, what I was talking about earlier about, like, having your, like, core activity, and then does all the experiments. We're kind of talking about ways in which you become educated in general. Yeah. But I found, at the same time, that was our deal. I found that I don't respect, and I don't mean respect, like, in a way, like, you know, or... Let me use a different word. I don't admire the hunting prowess of people who've just figured out a thing. Yeah, it's the, the, a one-trick pony. Yeah, like, you know, it'd be like some dude, like, yeah, like in September, he catches a ton of salmon trolling in front of that river mouth. Yeah. He's the man. I'm always like, yeah, but, you know, like anything could happen. And that fishery, whatever, like, so I kind of admire like adaptability, you yeah. know, or I'll know people that, you know, they kill a buck every year and then they, the, the whoever owns the farm they're hunting on sells the farm. They never hunt again. <laughs> yeah. It's like one man, he's like the dude that like, yeah, oh, John, man, every opening day he gets his buck. And it's yeah. like, yeah, but it's just like, I have my little thing. Yeah. So through traveling and experimenting, I find that like just adaptability in and of itself is valuable. Oh, I, I agree completely. I mean, it makes you feel it, more comfortable because I used to feel very vulnerable when I first started hunting here, first started hunting elk here. I felt very vulnerable. Like, man, would we be screwed if somehow this trailhead were to gain popularity? Mm -hmm. 
Oh yeah, I mean we'd you, be done. Yeah, and because the, the only thing we know is you park here, <laughs> walk there, and they're there. Yeah, and like if they weren't, yeah, what the hell then? Right. So I do like the kind of stuff you're saying, like go anywhere and have a, a like a toolbox that you can, you know. Yeah, I, draw upon. I, I've just been lucky to get to hunt elk in so many places. You might not even be comfortable answering because it sounds like you're like tooting your own horn or whatever. But how, like, like how many states or what states have you killed public land elk on? Um, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada. Uh, Should have last year in Utah. In two weeks, people will get to see. You guys know how it is. 18 yards of bulls standing there, and I'm at, you know, with my archery gear thinking, come on, buddy, take one step. And either the camera's got them or I don't have them. And so I could have added Utah to that list, if not for a very lucky, lucky bull last year. But so, um, but this is all like do it on your own public yeah, land hunt, right? That's I, that's still seven states, is it? I think that's what okay. I got yeah, I, you know, I, <laughs> and for me, I, I don't really even think about it in terms of numbers. It's like no, no. That's why I hesitated to ask you. Yeah, that, but I mean, it, it speaks for itself. Yeah, it's just experiences, and you know, like. A classic example of a learning experience is I'm in New Mexico. It's archery season. I mean, it's blistering hot. I go up high, and everyone else is up high. High like what? 8,000 feet, Mm -hmm. trying to get in some Ponderosa. And I got my spotting scope out on this rock, and I'm looking down, and I see all these elk out on the flats in these grasslands. Grab my GPS and my map. I'm like, shit, that's BLM. So I go down there, and there's some guys camped there. And I'm like, you guys hunting these elk out here? Oh, no, you'll never be able to get up on them. I mean, you can't call them in. Well, I grew up spotting stock hunting in a lot of ways in the big woods of Minnesota, as weird as that sounds. You know, you're trying to find some place where a buck is hanging out, and you're trying to see him before he sees you. Because if he sees you first, one big jump, and he's gone. Still still hunting. Yeah. Pretty much still hunting. So I'm thinking, you know what? Those elk got a bed somewhere out there. I go out there, and I get to looking around. I can see where they're bedding. Wherever there's a break in the terrain, just a rock pile like six feet, you know, dropping a rock, they're bedding right up against those rocks. For shade or for protection? For shade. Yeah. I go out there, and within a day, I arrow one of those bulls at like two yards. And we come packing I it saw, out. I saw that. Yeah, we come packing it out, and the guys, we walk past their camp. They're like, where the hell did you get that? Out there. And I could have shot other bulls on that trip. Every time I've went back to that spot and been lucky enough to draw, those elk have figured out no hunters want to come out here because it's about a three-mile hike. It's hot. There's no shade. But there's no hunters either. Yeah. So elk will go where they're they're kind of like this fluid animal that moves in response to pressure, kind of like water. I mean, you push against a water balloon, and the water moves to a different spot in the balloon. It's kind of how these elk are. And so I, every year I hope I draw that tag because it's so consistent. I go to that trailhead. I walk out there. No one's going to be there, and there are going to be elk there. Yeah. So it's just one of those things, though, if you have enough experiences and go to enough different places, you kind of have those discovery moments and say, hmm, 
And what's funny is like if someone tells you like that's this, describe that hunt, but put an antelope in there, they're like, oh yeah, for sure, we'll go after those antelope way out there in the flats. But then right. someone puts an elk out in that same country, and no, can't yeah. kill those things. Yeah, and I don't know. I think we on TV have a tendency to maybe create some narrow mindedness among hunters from the standpoint of what works or or how wide your thinking should be. Yeah, I mean these are smart animals. This, <laughs> they've figured it out. They've somehow, you know, a bull that lives six years on public land, he's no dummy. Just like a whitetail that lives past three years in the Midwest. Yep. He's no dummy. And uh, don't don't discount some of the things they will do to stay alive. They, they just have figured out how to stay alive. That spot you're talking about where you say, you know, if you go there. Uh-huh. Um, to me, man, like my most valuable possessions in life are those just handful of things. <laughs> yeah. Just like reliable things. And, you know, y- you really rarely have more than a half dozen. I know. So, and I'm not talking just one species. I mean, just like the things that work and now and then for whatever reason you just scratch them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or you haven't done it in so long. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like a thing anymore. But it's like knowing like the junk that works. And stuff goes away. Like I used to be, because it feels like stuff changes. Like I used to, one of my things, like that I counted on my things, like the ability that we would pound steelhead at the 6th Street Dam in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I haven't done it in forever. The dam, they haven't changed the dam. They haven't changed the river. The steelhead are still there. But I feel like somehow if I went back, like I wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> I like lost it as my thing, you know? Yeah. I, just, I haven't done it so long. I almost feel like telling people. I recently had a thing where I had a friend move to a place I used to live. And I'm imploring him. I'm begging him to go sit a certain avalanche slide to see if a bear came out. Yeah. Because I hadn't hunted in a decade. And he goes up and says, yeah, I went up there. It was all snowy. I'm like, no, you're not listening to what I'm saying, dude. It doesn't matter. The shoot will be fine. I don't care how much snow you got to wade through. Park your damn car, walk up there, and look. You know? And he thinks I'm trying to help him out. I'm just trying to know, like, do I still <laughs> I'm like, do I still have a thing or not here? Yeah. And I'm telling him, like, you go this one time, you know, and he goes up, calls back, I saw a bear. I'm like, never go there again. That's it. <laughs> I just needed to know that I still have that little thing. Yeah, you know, and, it works. <laughs> in these little places, I I'm a big advocate for conservation, but uh, and a lot of people know I sit on the board of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. One of their people came to me and said, "Randy, would you auction off your GPS with all your waypoints?" <laughs> and I, you talk That's about a bold mixed, question. Yeah, man. you talk about mixed emotions because I, you know, I. You didn't do it, did you? No, I, I haven't. And uh, You would have done it, but you I, lost your GPS, so you couldn't. I found that GPS. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, Yana saw me a couple months ago. I was in panic mode. My GPS with all of this cherished, hard Randy Newberg's yeah. brain. Yeah, I'd lost it. I'd been out muskrat trapping, and I couldn't find the damn thing. Well, I have these custom seat covers made. And I put it somewhere where I wouldn't forget where I put it. Yeah. And that's where I was. I found it in May sometime. But 
So, well, now you no, can auction it off then. No, I, I've never. I will someday auction it off, but it, it kind of like what you were saying, Steve, about you know respect for people who are adaptable or whatever. I respect people who want to go out and figure it out, who who want to take the journey rather than be led to the destination yeah. and say, "Here he is, shoot him." Yep. I mean. The guy who just racks his brain and works and goes out before work or whatever on the weekends and you know he's skimped for time but somehow he shoots a bull every year. That guy's got my respect. Yeah, I like that guy. I always like I always want to help that guy out. Me too. And I always want to help out the guy with his kid. Yeah. Oh the dude home with his kid and I was like, Yeah, you know what I would do. But um Yeah, man, the the thing about auctioning off it's just like like you said, you're, you're proponent of con- conservation. Um, it just brings up a thing that, that I think about all the time is when people talk about the need for hunter recruitment. Right? Yeah, that the hunting will have that the thinking goes that for hunting to survive politically. I mean, I'm not telling you that just for listeners that for hunting to survive in, in, in today's political climate, we need to have we need to have healthy, robust numbers. Right. Yep. Um. But a, a thing that critics of that say, including many friends of mine, who, who critics of the idea of hunter recruitment, will be like, well, why would you want to increase the likelihood of someone being in your spot? <laughs> I hear it all the time. And when I get asked by people, and I often will give talks, and the thing that always comes up when I give a talk is people be like, what can we be doing? Or why are hunter numbers stagnant? Or why does the average hunter get older? So, you know, what what... What do you see from the people you meet? I'm like, you know what? Inspiring people to want to go is not a problem, right? There's plenty yeah. of motivation out there. Yeah. The cost, I don't think it's like there's not a lot of people. There aren't tons of people who want to hunt but can't because of the cost. Yep. They're not hunting because they don't have a good spot. And a lot of people aren't willing to just make the sacrifices necessary to find good spots. I've found, I take people out, take them on amazing trips, and then they aren't going to replicate that amazing trip unless they do tons of hard work to find their own stuff. And that's it for them. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, so like I like, so if I was consistent with what I'm saying, I would give up all my spots. True. You would. Cause I would be able to make a handful of people, but it's just not something I'm willing to do. And, and some people like, you know, my older brother, he just thinks that all this talk is just ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I've listened to some of your podcasts where the to- this topics come up, and I'm kind of torn between. I'm I'm all about making sure opportunity exists, but not handing it to them. I think the worst thing you can do for a, a prospective hunter is to hand them something. I found and, that to and, be true personally, and just show them the easy way. Oh, well, that's all there is to that, and you've cheated them out of the entire experience of what hunting really is. In my mind, yeah, I, I don't think that's the the value that people when people say hunting recruitment, that's not what I think of. You know, bring them out that bringing them out there, make sure they kill something the first day. No, you know, let them get a little cold, let them, you know, maybe feel a little lost, let them have to work. And that's the part that is going to make them a hunter for the long term. If it's if it's easy, there's no reward in it. 
Yeah, I don't want to make new hunters just for the sake of doing it. No. If you told me, if I signed some treaty with the non-hunting public that said, we'll never mess with you, okay, in perpetuity, you will not be messed with politically or environmentally. I'd be like, okay, I'll just be the only, then I just want to be the only guy that hunts. <laughs> as long as you're telling me that you're not going to mess with the habitat, and you're not going to mess with the hunting rights, you know, that's fine. I'll just be the guy. Do you think, I'll take, I'll take that job. You know? I've, I've heard you talk about your brother's opinion on this and growing up in Michigan, I'm assuming it was a little bit like where I grew up in Minnesota where everybody hunted and fished. Everybody. It well, was, every household. Right. Every household. Yeah. I mean, I did not know anyone who really ate beef growing up. Until I went off to college, I, I didn't realize how much beef, chicken, and pork got consumed. Oh, man. We, no, definitely. We ate all kinds. Like, we ate. There was all around. Domestic meat was there, but they everybody hunted. But it wasn't like uh it wasn't like a subsistence area by any yeah. stretch, no. <clears throat> and so the the point I'm getting to is because some people grow up in that environment where you just work your butt off and you hunt and you fish and you trap and you do all those kind of things, you, you encounter experiences that shape and form you so you don't need to be quote-unquote recruited as a hunter. Yeah. I, everybody I grew up with, they were going to be hunters because we came from a society of hunters. That was our identity. That You weren't, oh, I'm a carpenter and then I'm a hunter. It was the reverse. No, I'm a hunter. It, yeah. it just who you were. If, if you were a young kid, you looked up to the guys who were hunters in your community or fishermen or trappers or whatever. And so I, I think a lot of quote-unquote problems we, we attribute to hunting recruitment are just the environment or atmosphere in which we're trying to bring them into it. Uh, you know, trying to bring someone who's only ex- exposed to nature or to the natural world for one day out of a year, you're not going to convert them to yeah. being a hunter like we think of a hunter. You have to put in the effort and the work to immerse them to a level where they understand all the other parts of hunting. You know, I thought about that because I've been, um, befuddled at times by taking people out on that one day a year thing, you know, like, okay, I took you on this, like we flew up, we did like a caribou hunt. Surely you'll now be a hunter. And then they just never hunt again. Yeah. I don't understand, dude. (laughs) But then we were, we were talking this not long ago, I feel like, but if someone took me sailing, they're like, hey, man, you want to come sailing for a day? Like, oh, why not? Later on, they're like, I can't believe he never became a sailor. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, dude, I just thought it'd be interesting to go sailing for a day. We went sailing. That's great. Right. Was, I mean, do I regret going sailing? No. Do I want to, like, be a sailor? Yeah. No. It was fun. Yeah. You know? I think a lot of people look at it that way. Like, I look at it like, do you self-define as a hunter or not? I do, and that's <laughs> because you know, most people don't look at the world that way. I, I, I well, people ask me. I, I think we were doing an interview with you guys. I think, and someone said, "Randy, introduce yourself." Randy, I'm Randy Newberg, hunter. I, it's just that's who I am. Yeah, professionally, I'm a CPA and everything else, but everyone who knows me 
All the people I hang out with, they're hunters. And we look at the world through a lens that is so much different than everybody else. And I used to think that I was the same as everybody else. But after you have enough of these life experiences, interacting with enough people who don't hunt or see the world differently, you realize that hunting gives you a vision of the world like nothing else. Yeah, I mean, nothing I can think of compares to the vision of the natural world you get if you are a hunter. I don't. You mentioned trapping a couple yeah. times. Yeah. Before we yeah. get into trapping too far, let's just take a quick break. So, Randy, you mentioned trapping a couple times, and now you mentioned that a hunter looks at the world in a way that no one else looks at it. I'll tell you that when I'm driving down the road and I drive over a bridge, <laughs> I know what you're saying, and I look off the bridge. Yeah. No one is looking at what I'm looking at. Or not no one. Very few individuals, a select few individuals, right. are looking off the bridge that way. Exactly. And just like when I drive through a valley and I'm looking up the mountains, like I do not see what other people see. I, I think I that I have, I think that hunting in some way makes it very difficult to look at the natural world with passivity completely agree it's like you're looking at it sort of in a way and it sounds egotistical but you're looking at it in a way like well how does this like pertain to me <laughs> in yeah. some way like where are the animals or what's up with that spot and it's like i can i can only see it that way if i go on vacation we just went on family vacation to hawaii the whole time i'm looking up those hills being like no what would have fell a fine up there at his bone arrow? You know what I mean? Like, I can't not see things that way. I can't. My wife has just been baffled by my inability to just sit on the beach. I, I, I am the same way. My wife will say, is that all you think about? Yeah, when I'm sitting honey, on a beach? I'm, yeah. yeah I, I, I'm thinking well, about one thing. <laughs> when, when we're doing whatever, you know, we might be driving down the road. And I'm like. On our way home, I want to stop there. Kind of like you're saying about the bridge. Because at that culvert right there, I'm pretty sure I could trap a muskrat. Yeah. That's what I was getting at when I said, like, driving over bridge. Like, yeah. So I grew up trapping in Michigan. You grew up trapping in Minnesota. Yeah. A lot of the, I don't know, 50%. I need to lay a little little bit of groundwork here. Like, when you're trapping, you run what's called a trap line. And, and no one just sets a trap. Like, you run a trap line, and your trap line might be six what we call sets or locations where you have a trap set. Or in the case of a mink long liner, you might have 200, 300 traps out, or what you call sets. So when I was trapping, 50% of my sets that I would make would be on public right-of-ways of bridges. Yeah. For mink and muskrat. Mink, muskrat, raccoon. Yep. So... Like I divided trapping up in my head, water trapping, land trapping. Yeah. So land trapping, you trap low. It was early. Like we'd land, we'd start land trapping. I don't remember. I can't remember now when I would do it. I'd start land trapping October ten, um, and you'd have twenty days of land trapping before water trapping opened up. During land trapping, I would target red fox, but um, I would get gray fox, and I would get raccoons that weren't that valuable. Because raccoons hadn't come into prime yeah. quite yet. 
Um, and then November 1, I would start water trapping zone 2. When I started water trapping zone 2, I would set tons of public right-of-ways where you are climbing into it. You don't, you're, it's not public land. You don't have permission on the land. But you could park your car on the bridge or park your car on the side of the road and sort of skirt down the bridge abutment, yeah. abutment get down in the river, and then make your set below the high water mark. Yeah. That, so you just learn the same way now as a hunter, I look at like a like a brushy strip between two cornfields in a certain way. Yeah, driving over bridges, I had a way of I would just be able to assess it so quickly. Yeah. Whether it was interesting to me or not. It, and I a lot of people ask me, well, how has trapping helped you as someone who hunts? Because you you still trap. Oh yeah. I mean, Giannis, you came with me one day last year. I I just sent all the muskrats to Canada to the fur auction and they sold them last two weeks ago. Um, what was your average for large? Oh, it's terrible this year. There's an article in the New York Times yesterday about how fur's coming back. Oh, the, no. They've not, been saying that for a bazillion. Thanks to Putin, we, the Russians are trying to invade everything in Eastern Europe. So it's, at least for a guy who's a, a muskrat mink guy like I am. Uh, two years ago, I got 12 bucks a piece for a double XL muskrat. Yeah. This year Which they were one in five muskrats. Right. This year they were five bucks a piece. I, I mean, premium winter skins. But, you know, two weeks out of my winter, I get to go and goof around, catch 300 muskrats, a few minks, some raccoon, dozen beaver. And it's just. You catch 300 scrats. We always call them scrats. Scrats, yeah. You catch 300 scrats in two weeks. Oh, easy. If I, if I didn't have taxis in to worry about, I could catch a thousand of them in two weeks. Yeah, it's it's crazy. What I trapped, um, I trapped a lot of muskrats, but I trapped fox, coyote, and an incidental of that would be raccoon, possum, skunk on dry land. They have possum in Michigan? Are you kidding me? Really? I didn't know that. We didn't have them in Minnesota. I didn't know they had them. I bet they do now. Probably. There's two things. There's two animals that are traditionally southern that have been really expanding the range northern. And that only has to do with climate change. I just think it has to do with just just slow adaptability. Raccoons. Yeah. Well, several javelinas seem to right. move northward all the time. Yeah. Opossums are moving northward. So yeah, get that stuff incidentally. Then I would trap muskrat, mink, beaver, raccoon. And then you were allowed, depending where you were, one or two river otters. And I would really work hard to get my otters, but I wouldn't sell my otters into the fur market. I'd sell them into the taxidermy trade. Oh, okay. Huh. Because they were a novelty item. Right. So, like, when I was traveling to Michigan, a bobcat in Michigan was worth 15 bucks. Right. Taxidermists give you 124. Yeah. Here, right now, a good western, as they call them, lynx cat, even though it's not a Canadian lynx. Yeah. You know, a really good colored spotted belly, you know, five, six hundred bucks. Yeah, taxidermists will still pay you hundred bucks for them. Yeah, so so it would vary. Where's you know, beaver? Back, you know, back then when in my area, coyotes were just coming in. Mm-hmm. So I remember the first two coyotes. I remember I sold them to taxidermists. Okay, because people were still kind of like, "Wow, coyote!" <laughs> yeah. And like people weren't as tied in then as they are now, because like pre-internet, somewhat pre-internet. Uh, so it's like what you had access to. Like I always argue now that the souvenirs are obsolete. Yeah. Can can I stop you there? You said somewhat pre-internet when you were trapping. Yeah, because I remember I had email and no, uh, well, way pre-internet when I started trapping. Okay, when I quit trapping, there was a university email thing. Okay, 
Because I was going to say, the internet, for me, when I was trapping growing up, Al Gore hadn't even graduated yeah. from college yet to invent the internet. But yeah, anyhow, yeah, I want to clarify the point. I set my first trap, caught my first muskrat in 1984, 10 years old. Okay. Way pre-internet. But I was thinking, right. when I quit trapping at 22 years of age, there was, at the college I went to, there was some kind of university email thing, and you, people were just starting to mess around. So, yeah. W- but at that time, when I sold those two coyotes, it was around that time. And I was saying that people used to have where you could go into a taxidermist, and they're like a provincial bunch. You know, you go into a taxidermist and be like, here's a coyote, and it wouldn't occur to them that there's guys out west with stacks of coyotes, like <laughs> coyotes stacked up every which way, and they're begging someone to take off their hands. and be like, holy shit, you know, I'll buy that coyote off you. So, you know, it was like that at the time. And as a side note, I was say, like, souvenirs have gone obsolete. Like, people were like, well, I went to France. You know, I bought you this bottle of wine. But, like, dude, buy, buy, that I buy that bottle of wine at Safeway, man. You know what I mean? Like, I could go online, but there's nothing I can't. Unless you find something out in the woods, there's nothing you can't give someone they just can't get. So it's, like, weird now to buy people. Like, you go to Hawaii and buy a seashell necklace. It's just weird because, like, yeah, I go to seashellnecklaces.com. <laughs> but yeah. what I was going to bring up, like, I mean, that was going to bring up about trapping is you, so you're 10 years older than I am. Yeah. Which means you hit the fur boom. Right. I, I missed the fur boom. The I fur know. boom definitions vary. It's largely accepted that, like, the great American fur boom, 1978 to 1982. Yeah, I hit it perfectly. Some people fudge it by a year or more, but for, there's just this this explosion of good fortune for fur markets having to do political, economical, fashion, yeah, yeah. commodities. It's a it's a hedge against commodities. It's a, when the dollar is going one way, furs can be going another. It, all those things yeah. and fur, came together, in but the, everything exploded. Right, fur prices. For fur, like anything with hair, fur on it, skyrocketed in value. Right. And overnight, and every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the world went out and borrowed a bunch of traps. Yeah, for sure. It was unbelievable how many people in my little town of Big Falls trapped. Now, you got to figure just adjusting for inflation. Yeah. Muskrats, it was like the era of the $6 muskrat, but we're talking in 1979. Yeah. In 1984, my first year in college, I came home for Christmas break. And me and my uncle, my uncle and I, we got 600 muskrats in a week. And we Trapping caught, what? What's that? Trapping what kind of cover? Like what kind of habitat? Up in these beaver flowages in northern Minnesota, you up north of Highway 2, you were allowed to cut the tops off their, their rat houses. Yeah. And so you'd cut it off, put a couple traps in there, put the lid back on, patch it all up. You'd have your trap on a long wire. So yeah. when you walked by, the muskrat got in your trap, and you knew because he went down the hole Took into the, the water, away. pulled the pulled the wire up against the hut. In so Michigan, you, you can't molest the hut. Oh, really? Okay. In southern Minnesota at that time, you couldn't. I think you can now. But we would go do that, and one guy would just walk around these beaver flowages and pull the muskrats out of the traps, put the traps back in, and the other guy would sit at a fire and skin muskrats because if, <laughs> if it was 20 below, you know, if you didn't skin them right away, they were hard. Oh, yeah, you weren't going to get them skinned. And so 
at that point in time to be a college freshman and come home and get five, six bucks for muskrats and your half of them is, you know, 300. I went back to college for winter semester. Man, it was Domino's and high quality beer that semester. It was yeah. it just how it was. I came back spring break of that college year and we caught 125 beaver in a week. And we were catching them so fast. That was trapped in northern Minnesota. Yeah. And, and like a lot of my buddies, we were catching so many, we didn't have time to skin them all. And the fur buyer would come, and we'd have them laying in the basement of my uncle's house, stacked up literally like firewood. And the guy would say, 20 bucks a piece in the round. In yeah. other words, you didn't have to skin them anything. He didn't size them. It was just 20 bucks a piece. Take them. And he'd just sit there and slap his $20 bills on the table, and we were just... I mean, we thought we had really hit the lottery. So, yeah, furs sold in three ways. You sell it. During the fur boom, trappers got interested in trapping faster than they could learn their trade. Correct. And there's a lot of people out for a quick dollar, and they weren't interested in sort of the discipline and art of being a trapper. And they would sell a lot of fur round. Yep. And round means on the animal. So fur buyers, like, let me add a layer out of this there's three ways to sell fur there's, there, there's three ways to sell fur meaning in the round uh, i got too many ideas going at once here there's two ways that you actually sell fur a fur buyer like a country fur buyer or a fur auction yep during the fur boom you had country fur buyers just like a guy buying fur out of his garage yeah he's selling to the auctions and the same trappers can basically sell to those auctions as well. But to sell at fur to an auction, you got to sell it fleshed and dried. Right. That's hard. It's, it's, it's harder to learn work. how to flesh a beaver than it is to trap a beaver. Yeah. During the fur boom, guys would go out and trap and just every night on their way home from trapping, go to the country fur buyer and sell fur in the round to the fur buyer. Or you could skin it, which is the easy part, and sell it green. <laughs> yeah. I sold all my raccoons, all my beaver, green. Wow. Skinned, but not fleshed and stretched. Right. But I could sell them at a small auction that way because I could just freeze them in a big chest freezer. Okay. So during the fur boom, you had a lot of guys that didn't know what end of a knife was sharp, but they were trapping and selling to fur buyers in the round. But you're walking and selling Red Fox in the round for 60 bucks. Yeah, it was crazy. But again, remember, we're talking about 1979. Right, and you take those dollars for inflation i remember it's like having a couple hundred dollar red box right in in 1982 my senior year in high school that fall i caught 50 some mink before school just running a trap line on my way to school and i think i averaged like 24 bucks a mink that's male female in the round no i i I mean because they're quick to skin and and dry and and stretch but yeah, because they come I, off clean. Yeah, like a mink, you don't have to flush them too much. No, it's the it's easy. And I just think about that now. I'm like, man, if I could get whatever twenty four dollars was in 1982, if I could get that today, I'd have to get out of outdoor TV because <laughs> I'd be trapping mink all day long. But you, you, in a way, you were getting screwed because what I want to say was when I came in in 1984, I was coming in on the euphoria of the fur boom, but without. The prices. Right. There was a lot of information out there. There was a lot of traps, used traps out there. But I had missed it by a couple of years. Yeah. So, but I came in at a time when people, there was still effort because it hadn't gone totally bad yet. We would get 
and I was 10. I couldn't really start any earlier. The first day I ever set traps was I set traps at midnight on November 1st, 1984. <laughs> By 7 a.m. on November 1st, 1984. It's like I have an alibi for that day, dude. I can tell you exactly where I was. <laughs> By 7 a.m., we had three muskrats. Wow. I think we had nine traps. We had three muskrats. Two were caught. One was caught in front of uh, Joe Babcock's house in a 110 condom bear. One was caught in front of this this foster family's house on North Lake, 110 Conner Bear, and we caught one on the north trending side of Crazy Mary's Point in a number one single long spring trap set under a stump where a bank den yeah. entered. I could tell you every <laughs> damn detail of that day so, in 1984. It, and we sold those muskrats for, I think, our big ones that year. We caught 20. Uh-huh. The first year. And my old man lent, lent us the money. Like, I have an older half-brother. He gave us six number one. He gave us six number one long spring, Victor Long Springs. Then what we did is our old man lent us money. He drew up a little contract, even on yellow legal paper, and <laughs> lent us enough money to buy one dozen Northwoods 110 bears. Okay. And we caught our first year trapping 20 muskrats, one smallish raccoon and made enough to not only pay for the conibears we bought but to go buy a bunch more conibears and i was off running yeah because at the time <laughs> if you caught a buck mink a buck mink is worth twice as much as a female right at it's even then minks held because you would get 40 bucks for a mink yeah oh it's it was crazy and i remember my two brothers one time late in the year i like quit I pulled out of our trapping collective, so I trapped my two brothers. I can't remember what something was going on at school. But anyways, they went to set some more muskrat ponds, and I didn't participate. And they came home and picked up two mink out of muskrat sets. Uh-huh. They, I remember them dudes walking the door with four, 40 bucks a piece and being blown <laughs> away. I remember in 1986, I shot a mink with a 32 special, took its head off, and bored a groove down the center of his back. <laughs> And we took it to a fur bar named Abe Salasina, and Abe Salasina offered me like $4 for that mink, and my old man cursing him out. Really? Because he thought you were getting the yeah. bad treatment? Yeah. Huh. He said, I invite you to sell that mink for more somewhere else. Huh. And the dude wanted to be right, no one would take the mink. Yeah. So it was missing all the good parts. So now, <laughs> here you are. What? You said you were 22 when last time you trapped? So I trapped from the time I was 10 to the time I was 22, and I thought I was taking. I was so into it. I was paying. I remember paying a guy named Mark June, who later became like right. a video yeah. whitetail guy. Yeah. I remember paying Mark June 250 bucks for a day's lessons in trapping red suburbia red fox. Huh. So do you miss it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I still set, every, I still set traps because I still, I like, I eventually settled into the thing I like to do is trap beaver through the ice. Oh, I love it. It became my thing. Mm-hmm. I liked everything about it. I liked, we would go out and out in the ice, December, January, with a push broom and push broom snow away on the ice looking for bubble trails, exhale trails. Yeah. And take axes and chainsaws and shit and get down through that ice <laughs> and stringing uh, snares and stringing 330s. And I loved every minute of it. I liked falling through the ice. Yeah. It's like I liked everything about it, man. And I still now will trap, I trap the beaver to spring. I'll still trap it, and I'll send it and get it tanned, and I'll have it made into stuff. Yeah. So I, got, I trap my own hat. 
I trap my own mittens. I got some stuff getting made right now. I got a beaver that my brother's having made into a hat for his wife. So I'm still in the fur business, but I'm just in person. I'm into personal use. Gotcha. And then I eat the beaver meat. Yeah. I like beaver meat. Well, and but I'm not into trap. I'm not trapping numbers like I used to. No, I'm just after a beaver. And I, I, I know some people are listening to this and probably thinking, man, these guys, they're off their rock here talking about trapping. But if you've trapped, you understand the excitement of laying in bed at night thinking, oh, that one, that set, that yeah. last set I made tonight, that's going to catch one in the morning. And you almost can't get to sleep at night. No, oh, you can't. It, it's worse than opening the night before opening day of deer season. I could never sleep nah. between setting because we'd go out and set at midnight <laughs> for scratch. Well, because we lived in a high competition area. Okay. We'd set our pre, we'd pick like what's the primo spot. Yeah. And we'd set, start setting midnight, and we'd set, like, even, even up into whatever age, when I quit trapping, I would still set traps from midnight through to dawn up to dark. Wow. And I would get a lot of sets out. I would punch in usually more than 75 sets. Wow. See, I, for mixed bag, I, uh, from otter to scratch. It was never that competitive for me. I mean, everyone kind of, okay, Randy's going to be out here. No John's going to be out there. It was, uh, no one bothered. But before we get done or get too far. No, I'll just Dave. get started on talking. Track. All right. We, we could, uh, Giannis is sitting there looking at us like, man, these guys can really spin it out. But, but I want to, I want to just, before you make your point, I want to say one last thing about the people think you're off the rock about trapping. Yeah. I remember making an observation and I'll stand by this today. The most skilled outdoorsmen are trappers. No doubt. I agree. And here's how I'll prove it. If you fish, there's people out there who just fish. Yeah. Right. Now, anyone that hunts knows how to fish. Correct. Anyone that traps knows how to hunt and fish. That's exactly right. It's just like, you know what I mean? It's just a thing. You're better. <laughs> a trapper's better than everybody else. You, you know more bits of... I, mean, I have right. to talk about... I, made, like, I remember I made this point before about guys who hunt lions with hounds. People be like, oh, yeah, what's the challenge in shooting a lion out of a tree? And then I met some houndsmen. Who hunt lions. Oh, they're and I realized that guy holds more bits of information in his head. Yeah. Right. If you could somehow quantify information the way we have digitally, right? And add up how many bits of in- hunting information <laughs> does a guy who shoots whitetails on his father in law's farm in Wisconsin, how many bits of information are in his head? And how many bits are in a houndsman's head? He has gigabyte upon gigabyte more information in his head. Yeah, I, I agree. A trapper, a good trapper, you can't, when you talk about reading sign, the ability to read sign, and it's just in spatial awareness and having a landscape map in your head, you can't get closer to it than a hardcore trapper. Yeah. The anticipation that, re- that trapping requires as far as anticipation of what that animal's going to do. Just makes you think and experiment so much more than hunting does because trapping they are stepping within an, you know a two inch area you got you gotta say I need him to step right here okay archers yeah forty yards is good enough a circle forty yards yeah 
Which means an 80 yard circle. Right. A circle with an 80 yard diameter. Right. And We're talking about a circle that's an inch and three quarter. Yeah. And, and I know most some archers who are just badass woodsmen, but try get that to a two inch circle. And the benefit eight. is with archery, you need to be there when it happens. Right. With trapping, you don't need to be there when it happens. True. Anyhow, I, I want to get to this point, Steve. So I read your book about your bison hunt in Alaska. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I knew you back when you did your show on Travel Channel, and and uh, I lucked out. I drew a free range bison tag in Montana for Jan. And it was January two thousand thirteen. I said, "All right, I got to go find a good bison book." I read your book, and you are either a stark raving nut or one hell of an author that makes that hunt and the danger involved seem way greater than it is. Or you just have a death wish. I read that and I said, this guy is, he owes the world the tragedy if this is how he oh. conducts himself out in the wild all the time. Was it, is this just like a really good piece of writing or was it really that wild? It was one, of, it was like the most intense 10 days that I've spent hunting. It, it's some of the it, most intense reading. I've but, ever had. But here's the thing. Here's I'll take a couple things. It's like that's a different kind of hunt. Like the Copper River hunt. Yeah. Is a difficult hunt. And it used to be much more difficult because at the time I drew it, all the land along that river was inaccessible because it's tribal land. Now they have a set access fee for people to draw that tag. Okay. At the time I drew it, there was no such thing. So you have this river, and there's herds of animals that migrate a good distance, 40 miles. They calve up by these glaciers in the Wrangles, and they winter down on these gravel flats, these willow flats along the Copper River. And there's willy-nilly distribution. It's a humongous area with maybe 100 animals in it, spread out over a ton of ground. And at the time, you could not hunt the river corridor. Okay. All the huntable land. You could find them down below high watermark, okay, on a gravel flat that was below high watermark and kill yeah. it there, okay, as long as it didn't go up. Right. If it, if it walked up, you're screwed. Yeah. Or you could get past the buffer along the river by wading up yeah. a tributary stream to get in, because then you're fine, you're below high watermark, to get into the hunting area. OnX Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. 
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. Here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With errands, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Errands fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest errands store or visit errands.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. The year I drew a tag, they gave out 24 permits. Four guys killed an animal. The season's eight months long. They find that most people don't show up. <laughs> Once you find out, they send you a letter. After you draw the tag, they send you a letter. They used to. This is 2004. They send you a letter saying, like, okay, you drew the tag, but basically you're screwed. Because there's serious land ownership issues. You have to understand what you're getting into. It's like there's major access issues. There's a lot of barriers to this. Yeah. I went, and the minute I drew it, I sold the story of this before going. I sold the story of this to a magazine, outside magazine, where okay. I, was a, I was a writer. Yeah. And at the time, I lived a very hand-to-mouth existence. So I'm doing a story <laughs> that will offset my cost in doing this. So I'm going to get like 4000 bucks to do the story. The hunt, all everything in is going to cost a lot. I had to do it. So I find now when people say like, well, why did you write like a book? Like, why did you write your book? There's two reasons. There's the, there's the, not the real reason, but there's like this like reality reason that oftentimes has to do with, with money. Right. It's just pragmatic. I, I yeah, it's like, it. well, I, cause I was going to write an article about it. You know, and I sold the thing. Why'd you run to it? Well, I'm very interested in Buffalo. I only write about what I'm interested in. I got in, as the story chronicles, my interest in Buffalo spawned, was spawned by me finding a, a right. Buffalo skull in the Madison range. Here in, in Montana. In a, in a weird place, like 9,000 feet above sea level in the mountains. Yep. I went up having a genetic line extracted from it. I had it radiocarbon dated. Like the book tells this big story of Buffalo in America. But the minute I found that skull, I was like, man, I'm going to write a book about these animals. I just don't know what the storyline is going to be. And then I drew that tag. So I had a lot riding on finding a buffalo and killing yeah. it. Okay. And I got into situations doing that 
that were and, and and I chronicle all this in like very detailed way. Oh yeah, and do. like it, yeah, when I was doing that book, you know, like because some people just fabricate whole cloth, and then publishers get in trouble and writers get in trouble. Yeah. So when I wrote that book, they made a big point. Like I had to go over everything on maps, provide names for people for them <laughs> to call. They just like wanted to know. But I could take you up there right now and walk you through it. And once you see what I'm talking about, it would all make sense in that you're confined, in my case, you're confined to either being in the Dadina, Nadina, or Chetislina River. You're not going to get to Anil's River. The only way to get to Anil's Rivers is wait till it freezes, which is the, like the other guys that kill buffalo are hunting off snow machines. Going up the frozen river. Wait till the river freezes. Okay. And they're killing them in the winter when the bad weather has pushed them down into the willows. The letter I got from Fish and Game that says you're screwed points out successful hunters on this hunt. And that's why they give you eight months. It starts September 1 and you have eight months. The reason they give you that is because the river freezes. They say most guys that kill buffalo on this hunt do it off snow machines when the animals are pushed down in the river flats. But you should be aware that river hasn't frozen in three years. Okay. <laughs> they hadn't been killing any buffalo uh. off that hunt. When I first drew the tag, I was like, sweet. I talked to my brother. I got a brother in Anchorage. He's got friends with snow machines. I'm going to go up in March, and we're going to go up. You got your low daylight, but you just basically cruise the river up and down, up and down, until there he is standing in a gnawing on a hunk of willow out on a willow island. It got where it just wasn't going to be. And so I got this idea that I'm going to have friends bring me down and we're going to hunt together. And I'm at first like, oh, we'll find one on the river. So I get my brother, two of our buddies who are avid rafters, and we get down and we, there's three main river areas we have identified as being areas where they've been killed in the past. We pass one, pass the other, get to the third, and have seen like a set of tracks. Yeah. These guys have jobs. <laughs> They're not starving like you are. They're like, sorry, dude. I'm like, I guess our only option here is that you'll leave me here and, you know, like cell phones and shit. Like, that's not going on. No. You'll leave me here and you'll come back and get me ne- like a week, over a week from now on a Sunday, and I'll be back down here. I have no way of getting up or down the river. I'm on the Copper River at the mouth of a tributary, and I got a little patch of ground I'm looking at. <laughs> You're not doing shit because I can't even leave the little island I'm on because I'll be on off land. Right. And I know I'm going to write about this, so I can't do like a wink and nod. Right. You, I could get checked got- into, or I'm also very vulnerable because I can't have a dead animal land somewhere I can't have it land. Yeah. You know? At that point, it's like, I'm going to have to just start. I'm just going to have to put waders on and wade up this cold-ass river by myself. And if I find one, and I did, shoot a 1,000-pound animal that I need to then move by myself (laughs) down to where I can get it into my buddy's raft next week. And there begins like a whole set of problems. Right. So you had invited me. And so like, yeah, it was like, it's not replicable, but it's like it all, it seems weird, like the shit that I had to go through. But when you start factoring in like all these decisions and I'm constantly being egged on by a couple things, the, the rareness of drawing the tag. Right. 
they've now they've since made it retroactively once in a lifetime. Right. Once you draw a buffalo tag in Alaska, and there's some gravy hunts. Right. There's like the uh, Delta the Junction Delta, hunts. You're yeah. basically shooting buffalo out of, uh, out of uh, oat fields. Once you draw a tag, and it proves to be once in a lifetime. Once you draw it, you cannot draw it again. I'm not talking successfully harvest. Right. Once you draw, draw, you cannot draw it. So I'm now incapable, and I was correct. It was a once, literally a once in a lifetime hunt. And I knew that I wanted to write my damn article, and I wanted to then write my book, and the way to do that was to kill that buffalo. <laughs> because I, and just before the, I read your I book. I wasn't going to leave. Yeah. I, <laughs> you had called that summer and said, hey, we should go to southeast Alaska and do a Sitka blacktail hunt. And then you and Dan came down with limes, I think, and we had to cancel that hunt. Mm-hmm. And then I read and this, a bunch of other hunts. Yeah, and I read that over the course of that fall. I'm reading the book, and I'm like, if this guy takes this many risks just to write a freaking story, I'm really glad he got Lyme's <laughs> disease, and I'm not up in the Alpine of Prince of Wales Island trying to survive with this crazy ass. Because Get sick. It. I mean, looking back on it, do you say what the hell was I thinking? No. No, it, okay. Because as a reader, no, it was just one of those great. It was just one of those great hunts, and and I'll say this, man. It's we had a conversation. This, you know, on this podcast, we had a conversation about, um, you know, like the way how how filming or writing affects the experience of right. hunting. It does. It's become inseparable for me now, though, because. I've been gifted the ability to do things and go places and have experiences um, that I just simply would not have ever had were it not for, you know, writing and filming. Yeah. Because it just I, I simply wouldn't have had the money and time. Yeah. You know, I have, yeah, I got Lime not filming. But I've had a lot of other problems, like small problems, large problems, dangerous situations that in large part, I just was egged into those situations somehow by one, by my desire to hunt. Because I got friends that never stepped foot near filming and never stepped foot near writing to get in all kinds of situations. But it does tend to, I'd be lying if I said, it does tend to add a second layer of motivation it does uh, i i to feel do that things and stay out doing them because um it, 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 i i almost wish it wasn't true but it's true it is it, i may have um watching my buddies and, and i wasn't as experienced in the out of doors in 2004 um i think it was to the 2004 hunt yeah standing on that bank in a strange place in Alaska, watch my buddies say, like, see ya. <laughs> and, like, there's, you know, you got grizzlies, saw a wolf right up from camp. It's like, yeah, there would have been a strong thing to be like, yeah, you know, it's just not the right year. Yeah. But I was like, no way, man, because as much as I'm a dedicated hunter, I guess I'm, a, I'm like a dedicated writer. Yeah, and – I've spent a lot of time in Alaska. I lucked out. My grandparents lived there. I got three uncles who lived there. And I go to some crazy places in Alaska. And the risks 
just Alaska itself has inherent risks like no other place. Yeah. And then you are there alone, and anyone who has been on a free-range bison hunt, like you and I have, and you tip one of them over, you walk up to it and say, what in the F am I going to do yeah. here? It, seeing one at Yellowstone Park or seeing one at the you know the local bison farm does not do it justice to when that thing's laying on the ground, it's cold, you're wet, and all you have is a knife. Yeah. It, and you add all those together and you did this in Alaska, I was just like, no freaking way. This the day, guy, I, the I, day I killed that one, I was camped on a ridge. It was like a ridge, but basically at the top of a canyon, like the plateau above a canyon, you know. It seemed like a ridge, but it actually didn't drop off the other side. But uh, I was it snowed. I was sleeping under a little red tarp, red on top, silver on bottom. I had that tarp strung up, and I was actually burning buffalo chips because they had wallowed. They had wallowed in that area in the summer, and I had a little mound of them stacked up under my thing. I just had a tarp, sleeping bag, buffalo chips backpack, and um, woke up in the morning. It was all like wet snow had fallen, and I was gonna light a, start my alcohol stove to make some coffee. And I was like, "Well, I better take a look down in the canyon," you know. Um, before I start my stove up. And I just grabbed my rifle and peered over and just like there was the freaking herd of them coming down, maybe because of the snow, just yeah. single file. And um, there's a big cow and they're up toward the top and there was wet snow. And I shot her with a, I'm left hand, I shot her with a right handed 300 mag I'd borrowed from a buddy of mine. <laughs> and that thing started going down that wet snow. It's a long drop, a very steep pitch. And when it hit a stand of uh, aspens or poplars, you know, yeah. I mean, it shattered. I mean, it was like a bowling ball hitting bowling pins, man, but just like <laughs> smash and just stuff flying everywhere. And I went down and that thing was so entangled in trees. I couldn't lift its head up. Right. I remember I just started, I was like, I'm just going to try to get a back leg off that thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I eventually dragged the back leg away. And then I cut a little gate to try to get some guts out of it. It was just it for three days. Wow. For three days, I cut and carried. And that didn't even get it down to where I needed to get it to. I cut and carried just to get it down to the tributary. Wow. So of all of the crazy things that writing and filming has maybe pushed you a little further than you otherwise would have, you look back, is that one of the defining ones that you say, you know what, there's nothing else I could have done in my ordinary life that would have given me this experience, this sense of reward, this sense yeah. of accomplishment? It was four, there's four trips that made, I guess there's, there's four trips that made, I feel like you're interviewing me, Randy, but there's, there's four trips that made... <laughs> I'm just curious. Yeah, there's four trips that made me like who. When I think of like who I am, um, as a hunter, there's four trips that made me who I am. That's one of them. All four were in Alaska. Okay. Uh, the first was the first caribou hunt I went on uh, on the north slope of the Brooks Range. We just like pickup truck, canoes, me and my brothers. Just had no idea what we we're getting into. The second was the first time. We went on a very unsuccessful doll sheep hunt. Just 
park truck, cross the river, start hiking. Nine days, saw one ram about three miles away that was sublegal. Um, the third was a successful sheep hunt we went on where we we, we killed two rams. Just self-guided, you know. Yep. And then that buffalo hunt. Wow. Are the ones that like, if I could give everything else, if I had to keep four and give the rest away, I'd keep those four. Okay. No doubt. Well, I'll quit interviewing you. I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm overstepping here, but I'm just curious because now that I reflect back on having hunted for 38 years and tagged along with my grandfather and my dad even before that, I look back and there's just certain events that I'm like, you know what? No other activity that I could have done in my life outside of being a hunter would have exposed me to that would have allowed me to walk away with that perspective, maybe that confidence, maybe pushed myself to that edge of saying, what the F am I doing here? Yeah. But then somehow being able to pull out of that, uh, and I've not been in combat, so I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to equate hunting to what it's like to be having guys shoot at you or anything, but of hobbies and activities or passions in life, I can't think of anything that would have given me those experiences of, you know, I could probably list a handful of them like you do. And so now when you get to be 50, you reflect back on that and you're like, well, shit is, am I just kind of out to pasture now? Am I done with those yeah. really cool experiences or do I got more of them ahead of me? And and you kind of get in this reflective mode at that point. And then, then, then you start interviewing the host of the show. <laughs> Cause you feel like you're a statesman. <laughs> Those challenges and tough things that happen to you and the discomfort and the like rewards and all that, that makes a special caliber of person. I like all manner of people. I hang out with all manner of people. But when it comes to like being comfortable around people in bad situations, or like being comfortable around people in the outdoors, guys that have been through the military. Yep. Mountaineers. Yep. And big game hunters. Yep. Tend to be like people that i just like feel comfortable around that i feel like like reliable right do you know what I mean like when you're with people and there's people you got to take care of and yeah people that not only take care of themselves but take care of everybody else i remember a guy talking about some people he fished with and he said steve you got to wait in line just to wash a dish <laughs> do you know what i mean meaning like the dudes he hangs out with like if you want to wash dishes get in line buddy <laughs> everybody wants to wash them dishes it's like that level of just like attacking problems yeah you know there's not many things in life that give i'm sure there's more than i'm naming yeah but lifetime exposure to those things seems to make the kind of guys that you got to get in line if you want to wash a dish yeah and i maybe i'm biased because just about everyone i hang out with is a hunter and so i can sit here and share these kind of experiences with them and i can have this very Wow, yeah, I get that to its greatest detail. And when I'm in the field with them, I'm very comfortable around them. There's some people where if you gave them a butter knife, I'm so uncomfortable. I think this guy's going to figure out how to cut his thumb off with a butter knife. Yeah, You know, there's just some of those people where you're like, I got to get the hell out of here. I'm not going to have any fun if I'm with a guy like this. And usually they don't have the background of, the three types that you mentioned, the military, the mountaineers, or big game hunters, and maybe there's a couple other similar oh, yeah, I'm sure there's more. But 
for me, it's just, yeah, I, that's why I asked the question of, you know, how profound that hunt was. That's the situation I'm in now is, you know, I got kids and my wife and I have this ongoing debate where I expose them to, I'm not negligent anyway, but I expose them to what be, might be regarded as dangers by a big segment of the oh yeah population, right? To me, it seems like very pedestrian, not dangerous at all. But some people might regard activities that I expose my kid, kids to, kid to, as being like not age appropriate or being a little bit dangerous. And I'm always like, yep, yeah, okay, that's a little bit dangerous. Surely he might cut his finger. Right. But the thing I always point out, we were having this conversation the other day. Someone's like, everybody keeps talking about my kid cutting his finger with his knife. I always cut my fingers with my knife when I was a kid. <laughs> so it's like, who didn't? Like, one, how, like, let's not act like that's the end bad. Yeah. It's like, that's just a given. He's going to cut his finger. But I'm always like, okay, let's deprive him of the dangerous stuff. But at what, co- at what danger does that come? It comes at a huge danger, I think. Because like the- later on, it's like, you, you wind up with a helpless person. And there's other ways to get there. It's like, you know, I don't know if there's like some Bible passage, like there's many ways to get to whatever. There, there's other ways to get there. I'm not saying like if you don't hunt and fish with your kids, you're going to have crappy kids because it's certainly not right. the case. No. Because you can get there a bazillion ways. Right. But from my exposure, my experience, where I come from, the way to get there that I understand, the way to get there that I can present to my children is very much that way. Yeah. Because them watching me write, isn't going to get them there. True. <laughs> it's just not. Yeah. Them watching me record podcasts isn't going to get them there. <laughs> okay? Them watching me flay fish, it's hard to explain. I feel as though that might. Really? My son felt a lot of danger when he'd see me balancing the debits and the credits. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, Dad, the way you really handled that. Uh... That abacus. You are the Charlie Daniels of the abacus, Dad. Man, <laughs> I feel comforted now. You've taught me the life lessons. but Yeah. Um, and it's a false... In some ways, you might regard it as the false world now because, um, in my mind, the nature of subsistence has changed. For people to live anywhere outside of a small handful of locations around the world, the nature of like subsistence hunting and fishing, you know, it's just not like, like I always say, like, I'm going to eat fine, dude. You can take hunting and fishing away from me. I'm, like, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to starve. Right. You know, it's not like reality TV. It's like, if they don't get this, they'll die. Yeah. Right. It's just not true. But, I guess I've just in some way opted that I, I believe in elements of that subsistence lifestyle, right, still pertain. You oh, know? I, and the main risk of imminent starvation isn't there, but there are tremendous risks of, like, character, um, fortitude. Understanding. Still, you, how to use stuff. Yeah. It, how to use physical objects. Yeah. My, my son went to college back in New York, and I wondered – Man, how is he going to fit in back there? You know, he's coming from Montana. All we did hunt, fish, you know, shoot, whatever. And he's going to an Ivy League school that's kind of, well, it's known to be not like Montana. A fe- and, yeah. And so I'm worried that, okay, he goes there. How's he going to fit in? How's he going to cope with the different environment? And. The things he learned and the coping skills that he brought from hunting and fishing and understanding how a natural world works, he blew through it with no problem. I I was so impressed with how adaptable so much of what he learned as a hunter, fisherman, shooting, cutting his finger with a knife when he's six, you know, shoot your eye out. I mean, he had a BB gun when he was like five. But 
he was in a whole group of people that were not exposed to that. And he kind of emerged from that, not just unscathed, but almost like a leader that they looked to. Because oh, he, I think a lot of people would, out. would look at like the the Woods upbringing and say, oh, they they might miss out on some sort of social, you know, aspect that they're going to yeah. get more if you grow up in a big city like New York. But that's not the case. It's like you still have to have all those relationships and communicate with people and work through all that, and you're probably going to learn it because of the hardships in an even better way and a stronger way. Where like you're saying, he went there to that Ivy League school, and people are like, wow, this dude like. Yeah, he's strong, and, and just his perspective of ability to look at a more complex problem and not need it to be sanitized down to little compartments of, yeah. you know, oh well, this is a historical question. No, he, I think hunters as a general rule, people who understand the natural world, can stand back and look at a bigger, more complicated problem with multiple variables, like you see in the natural world, and other people struggle with that. Yeah, and I didn't really give it much thought until watching him go through that process and watching some other kids, his friends, go through and do similar things in different places. And I, we'd have the discussions of how you fitting in there. Well, fine. What, what do you mean? You know, like, yeah. Well, well, you're the one walking around with camouflage boots on an Ivy League campus, and everyone else is, you know, whatever. You got your Mad Bomber beaver fur hat on and your chopper mitts. I don't care. I'm warm. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, it, he was able to put everything in just a very simple solution, very pragmatic. And so the, this whole idea that we got to kind of coddle everybody, you know, back to your point of what is the future danger of removing all the dangers today? Yeah. I think we end up with kids or, or they become adults that can't handle a lot of things that maybe some of us <laughs> just take for granted. I remember being out with, uh, I bought this, this sit on top kayak uh, called a big tuna kayak, very stable sit on top fishing kayak. Um, and I, you know, I bought it very much in mind that I would fish with my boy. When we moved to Seattle, there's a lot of water around there. I just wanted something that I could get in the water. And the whole time, I'm like, I'd sit on top, the whole time, I'm like, what if the kid falls in the water? Yeah. In the winter. And I was like, all my thinking was like how he's going to not fall in the water. And we go out. I got bundled up. You know, he's got, obviously, I don't let the kid near a boat without a life jacket on. Yeah. Um, we get out in the water. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know, January, February, Pacific Northwest. And he was offended by later accusing him of just basically jumping out of the kayak. <laughs> He just like all of a sudden he's in there and then he's in the water. He like it, like it seemed to me like he did some kind of barrel roll out of his seat into the water. He fell very much. He did not want to be in that water. And like also like he's just there and then he's floating in the water. Uh oh. You know. And I haul him out of there and like at first my mind's just racing. You know. One the wrath of his mother. Yeah. Oh but, for sure. I mean, I didn't have him out of the water five seconds. I was glad he fell in. Yeah. Teach him. Because I'm kind of like, one, <laughs> falling out of the boat. Two, if a dude falls out of a boat in really cold weather, here's what you do. <laughs> we're going to run through it right now so you understand, like, the situation we're in, right? Yeah. And, yeah, now I look at it like, 
the one thing I didn't want to have was him falling out of the boat. Now when I think of like highlights of the last year, I'm like, man, I, you know, it sounds perverse. I'm like, it was great when uh, Jimmy fell out of that boat because like, look how much content we got out of that. Yeah. Like life's content. Yeah. You know? Wow. I remember I, our, like another time we were down in Baja fishing and it, I went out in the dark to fish and I told him a thousand times, I'm like, stay here, daddy's going to walk out in the dark. Don't move. You know, and I, I was going out to get a better cast. And I come up, some bitch is gone. <laughs> and look, he's like rolling around the tide, and I read out and grab him. <laughs> and I just kind of like drag him up, throw him in the shower. My wife's like, what in the world? You know? But um, yeah, now I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm kind of glad because in some way I feel like it's adding layers onto him. It, it is. I, I mean, I think about the stuff that I did. My parents would have been in jail and we would have been in foster homes in today's world. I <laughs> in mean, an actual endangered environment. Yeah, in my podcast that we were talking about the last week, I tried to, me and my cousins tried to build a bomb to blow up the train bridge when we were eight years old. I mean, you think about doing that now, but it's one of, I learned That's called so much. Son. Yeah, I learned so much about how you can saw a shotgun shell in half and pull the wad out and dump the powder in a paint can. And I mean, and that if you didn't, direct the force a certain direction all they did was blow a scour hole out between the two railroad ties i mean <laughs> but the the stuff that we did was so valuable as i got older in life and maybe it's because of the path i chose later in life it was valuable maybe if i hadn't done all that stuff i would have taken a different path yep. and people would have said look at that knucklehead grew up in that little town there he doesn't know his ass from third base but or how to blow up railroad bridge right but anyhow all I, right so let's uh you mentioned it. Plug it. You, you, you've been working on a podcast. Deals largely in conservation issues. I'll let you tell me. Yeah, and it's it's thanks to your friends here at Zero Point Zero. Uh, we were on a bear hunt last year. Giannis and Dan were filming me, and we talked about all kinds of things. That, in that's the Giannis of Hunt to Eat T-shirt in for me. Right? There you go. What do you call him? The Latvian, Latvian, Latvian lover? lover. Yeah. That, that Giannis. Great t-shirt, and magnate, hunt to eat. You got a hunt to eat t-shirt, Randy? I do, thanks to Giannis. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you give it to him? Yeah, he sent oh, me Yanni. two of them. Yeah. That good plug but, here. They're, they're but Yanni's not going to send you one. You got to go to hunteat.com and <laughs> yeah. buy one of his t-shirts. That's right. And, All right, so anyhow. So anyhow. Dan and Giannis. Yeah, they, they're like, you need a podcast, buddy. You, you're you just like spouting off all the time. You're blowing and carrying on. You need, no, with no one no one there to listen. Right, yeah. You know, <laughs> just nothing but a few seals and, you know, two two poor Camry guys. And uh, so it took us the last part of a year to decide we're going to do this. And so thanks to these guys, we have the other podcast that 0.0 produces called Hunt Talk radio i.e randy newberg unfiltered and it's just me and friends talking about hunting fishing growing up conservation poli- a lot of politics and probably i got into marital advice one time didn't we mm-hmm. Jonas? I, uh, you know you know we, we we end these podcasts where you get to have a concluding thought yeah Give me some marital. Not that I need it, but okay. give give the listeners marital advice right. as you're concluding. Okay, I, I don't like to dictate your concluding thought. No, but I, if you see fit, every, every camera guy I have is like in his twenties, early thirties. He's getting in this, you know, thinking of getting married. Like Dan, isn't Dan getting married? Yeah. This yeah. Summer? All right. Yeah. And so they're all, well, I'm going to wear the pants in my house, and I just about drive in the ditch when I hear him say that. I'm like, yeah, right. 
And sooner or later, it's like, all right, you've been married 26 years, Randy. Give me one piece of advice. So this will be the concluding thought. Yeah. I'm going to do marriage advice for mine. Okay. If you want a long, happy marriage, be more interested in peace than you are justice. You don't have to be right. Being right is expensive, financially expensive, emotionally expensive, and you don't get to hunt and fish nearly as much as the guys who let let them be right. Half more than half the time they're right anyhow. So, yeah. you know what? Chances it's, are, yeah, it's not about this whole idea of justice. I'm right, she's wrong. Well, you'll regret saying that. Yeah. I proved to you that I actually was. Doing yeah, it. I, I mean, anyone who's been married more than about a month has been down that path. <laughs> Yeah, and so I just tell everyone, be more interested in peace than you are justice, and all will be well. I have three pieces of marital advice. Okay. Try to do them quick. (laughs) Set a very strong precedent. Um, When you meet a man or a lady, live the life that you want to live 10 years into your marriage. Great advice. Now. Great advice. Will not earn back you don't get freedoms. Exactly. The, the noose doesn't get looser. It gets I tighter. I knew guys who would start dating a girl, and they're all infatuated. And, you know, it's like Thanksgiving at their parents, and, you know, instead of doing whatever. And then a couple years down the road, they're like, well, you know, I actually usually on Thanksgiving, I'm usually, you know, we usually fish steelhead around Thanksgiving, so we're kind of coming into the rivers. It's like, no, you don't. You go, we go to my mom's every year for Thanksgiving. Oh, but, man. yeah, well, I mean, normally, it's like, Live it, you know, from the start. Yeah, as much you talk about dragging yourself away from mama, drag even at at its most difficult point. (laughs) At its most difficult point in the beginning, find it in yourself to drag yourself away from mama. (laughs) Second piece of marital advice I have is, uh, how long you've been married? My anniversary's coming up. Well, I know that that means one year. No, I got married in 2008. Okay, so you're seven years into yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm, I'm giving advice not from like having with, you know, weathered time. I'm just like, okay, just observations. All right. Um, you always hear it's like cliche, pick your battles. Oh, for sure. It's like there's just some stuff like, for instance, issues with my kids, like, like what they're doing when, who's going where for holidays. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like what their clothes are, like what time we're supposed to get up or what time they got to be just like, okay. Yeah. That's just static. Ignore just like, and I'm not, I'm not saying like just the kids, but there's many issues, like many matters of, of how our house is structured, how our time is structured, matters of our social life. Okay. There's just a lot of stuff like when you're going to be working, when you're not going to be working. Um, then it's like, okay, you know, we're going to be moving. Okay, so like the house we're going to live in. I know I have some input on this, but not a ton. Right. Um, Drum rolls. Number three. Number three? How can I not remember number three? Oh, read the works of Cormac McCarthy. He never talks about marriage. But read the works of Cormac McCarthy and try to decipher his moral code, which is consistent throughout his works. And then... And, and and read them and internalize Cormac McCarthy's moral code, and you'll have a better marriage. Huh? I'll have to read that. Yeah, it's a, you're saying a huge. You're making a huge commitment for yourself. Am I? Well, how, well, like, is it 
it's not thousands a of pages. It's not a picture book. No. Well, she's wrote many books, but start with the Border Trilogy. Oh no. Uh, and, and I'll sum them up because I'll sum up the way I've interpreted the works. Chronicles. Okay, please. There's a morality there where a lot of people want to live in a world that existed before they made the decisions that they've made. Okay. Yeah. That we see, we see you go like, oh, but you're still trying. It's like, I see it all the time now after reading Court McCarthy. I'm like, oh, no, no, buddy. You're trying to live the life that, you, that, that existed before you made a very willful decision to take a certain path here. Yeah. Abandon the notion that, that, that you, like, abandon the idea that you're somehow going to get out of the situation you're in. Kids, whatever. It's like, you're here now. There is no life outside of this. Stop pretending that there is. Yeah. Yanni? Yeah, Giannis, how long have you been married? You can have a concluding thought. It doesn't have to be about marriage. No, I'll give one. About marriage, I think. 12 years. Okay. 2003. So I got a couple under my belt. They've all been great. Um, This piece of advice actually came from another fishing client of mine. I think I got it her a few times. Her? Her, yeah. And she'd been a, in a long, long marriage, and um, she basically got dumped for the, you know, the secretary, something along those lines. And not the fishing she, guide. She not the fishing guide. She didn't. <laughs> she didn't see it coming, and it, it really beat her up. And so she went on. She embarked on this, you know, like it was a it was a pole, but it was like a, a journey. But it was like this pole that she constantly kept up with, and she kept tallies and notes and when she saw old couples she always went to them and said hey what's what was what was like what's the secret what's your one little tip or whatever and what she came away from with it all the number one one word that people always said and everybody's like oh it's love you know it's like well love is bullshit you know a lot of times love just does not have that lasting power sometimes what does is commitment and i always try to remember that yeah well, I'm, I'm committed, you know, and I believe, and I have to believe that my wife is also committed yeah. to me, and that always, you know, no, no problems getting through hard times. Ronnie Bain, who has no shortage of uh, wise observations, <laughs> was talking to an old man one time that was speaking of his wife, and the old man said, "You know, Ron, I wouldn't give you ten cents for another one just like her, but I wouldn't take a million dollars for her." And there's sort of a like a fatalistic sort <laughs> right. of thing there. Yeah, it's just like that's what I got. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, well, I I think any of us who get to hunt, travel as much as we do, got to have something figured out. And I think that's why a lot of people ask me for marital advice. I'm giving a an elk hunting seminar, and someone will raise their hand. How does your life, wife let you hunt so much? Yeah, and so I got I feel like I'm going into this Doctor Phil discussion or no, something, and, and I tell him the best deal I ever made in my marriage was when we built our last house in 2004. Uh, I told my wife, "You can take 15 percent of the cost of the house and add it to furnishings, whatever you want. I don't care. I don't care what color, what size, but I don't ever want to hear a budget discussion about hunting." Ever again. Yeah. And she jumped on that like a rat on a Cheeto, man. She was on it. Yeah. And so I hunt. I fish. No, I get to hunt a lot. I, but here's the thing, though. I love being married. Like, Oh, me too. Yeah. It's, I love seeing my wife. I love being married. Yeah. I love having my kids. I like to hunt and fish. Yeah. It's, it's like, so yeah, there's, 
and I'm not saying that all everything that I'm arguing is on behalf of being able to hunt and fish more. Yeah. But I think that, like we were saying earlier, there's certain lessons to be found in hunting and fishing, and there's certain things where, you know, that's just like something that's important to me, and I've found a way to have it be that it's just like an integral part of the household, even though my wife, you know, familiar with, sympathetic towards, but would never, doesn't self-identify as an avid angler. Yeah. You know, doesn't hunt. Like, well, certainly fish, but doesn't. If she got to list ten things she is, fishing would fisherwoman wouldn't make the list. You know? <laughs> oh gosh, I'm sorry to keep adding tangential discussions no, no. here. Everybody's yeah. had her concluding thoughts. Yeah, Randy, wrap it up. Very, Steve, this is the longest we've we've talked. This is the longest we've ever had to actually talk. Oh really, man? I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, uh, you and me. Oh yeah, you and I. We had a long phone conversation one never time. This I long. remember, but yeah, it's it's good. Hopefully, we'll get to do it over. Uh, campfire and a fresh backstrap someday yeah well we're all sick from something yeah i don't know you guys come down with more foodborne ailments i was telling my wife about some of the things you guys eat because she asked me what i was doing with that bear i shot this year and i told them yeah oh Giannis wants these hawks in this she's like aren't those the guys that get sick every time they cook something <laughs> i'm like yeah she's like and you said you were gonna go hunting with him sometime maybe <laughs> so yeah you only eat anything that comes out of a package but. yeah well guys thanks for having me no, so it's great. great i appreciate all you guys do for hunting and the, and the the message you guys are getting out there is so needed and so valuable not just to hunting but how hunting can expand its boundaries to a bigger discussion in society so as a la- I want the last usually i'll say like thanks for listening but ha- the la- plug the plug the podcast again hunt talk podcast randy newberg unfiltered you can go to itunes and get it produced by 0.0 thanks for letting me plug it in steve Uh, tune in thanks everybody appreciate it hey you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it you can do that at errands yep you can rent to own appliances like washers dryers or refrigerators furniture for your living room or bedroom even tech plus errands has great brands like hp samsung and ashley life's always changing keep it return it upgrade it errands fits your life instead of the other way around so check out your nearest errands store or visit errands.com to see what i'm talking about approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply you got to see your local store for details two-thirds of americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout you could be one of them sitting in the dark and cold for hours for days maybe even weeks Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater.